I wish I had started off with more of a, a growth mindset. I think I, for too long, just believed you're either good at something or you're not. Instead of just allowing myself to see everything as a work in progress, where, yeah, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but those weaknesses, you can get better at them over time. And I think as a result, I was, I've spent a lot of time not being nice to myself. Like just when you're holding yourself up to unrealistic standards, it can become really toxic. So I think one of the biggest things was to see myself as a work in progress instead of just deeply flawed. Right. I would have had much healthier career just in terms of how I saw myself as an athlete. Yeah. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. Sarah True, two-time Olympian, regular on the World Cup podium, lifelong athlete, USA triathlon, you got triathlete it. of the year <laughs> multiple times. Yeah, the journey through sports. And you know, I've listened to you on other podcasts and excited to have you here. And if you've listened to any of my shows, you know that I start with a really hard question. Yes, every I time. like hard questions. Yeah. So, so what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had toast <laughs> with peanut butter and strawberries and is coffee. It, is that a go-to? <laughs> No, I was kind of in a rush. So uh, normally I'm more of an oatmeal or overnight oats person. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm a fan of the oatmeal too. So we'll start with just growing up and uh, kind of your intro into sports, but just really like tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you came from. Yeah, I'm an upstate New Yorker originally, Cooperstown, New York. So we, we moved there when I was four and that's where I spent my formative years, if you will. Yeah, it's a small town. It's actually a village. It's not even a town because yeah. there are about 2,000 people. And it's this beautiful little town that comes to life in the summer with all the baseball tourists. But it was a great place to just kind of be outside without parents watching me, kind of running around town, you know, pretty quintessential small town yeah. childhood. And what sports were you playing as 10-year-old Sarah? I tried everything, basically. Um, You know, I think if I had a hockey rink closer by, I would have been a hockey player. Um, We played pond hockey quite a bit, and I loved it. I swam, I ran, I played soccer, um, baseball, of course, Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, Yeah, I really tried everything, and I definitely gravitated towards endurance sport because I, I liked the idea that if you just focused on something, you would get better. Um, one of my frustrations with uh, soccer was that you could spend a lot of time on the bench uh, mm. and it wasn't up to you. <laughs> yeah. And I liked the idea of just being free and being totally in control of my own performance. Yeah. And that it, and I'm not that coordinated, yeah. let's be honest. <laughs> so were you uh, natural? at sports growing up? Uh, I think I was a pretty good athlete. You know, I was just always active. And I'm the youngest of three. 
both of my siblings were pretty active, did sports. Um, I always wanted to beat them. So I think that definitely plays a role. Yeah. Brothers or sisters? or oh, My sister's three years older. My, my brother's five years older. Okay. The reason I joined swimming, yeah. I was not allowed to because my sister had joined. And so, of course... You guys can't compete in the same sport. <laughs> right. So, of course, I was just clamoring to join the swim team. And she had a, a size advantage over me for many years. But then I kind of reached the point where I realized that if I outworked her, I could beat her. Mm. So, I don't know. Is that is that talent? It's the youngest sibling that, <laughs> totally. or youngest kid. Totally. That's, I've heard that Abby Wambach chasing her older brothers around I yeah. think, in the soccer field. I think, I think, <laughs> I think it's important, you know, to have that role model because they definitely were hardworking. And yeah. I think that was something I took away from watching their experience in sport. But then, were you competitive as a kid or like oh, inner? Yeah. yeah, super. Yeah, super competitive. Yeah. But I had a lot of interests and yeah. I wanted to kind of see some of them through um i tried theater i tried dance i tried all these different things and realized that if i wanted to get good at sports i couldn't do everything mm. so that was one of the the harder decisions and when did you start to pick did you ever fully specialize in a sport in high school or did you uh you know i i swam and i ran in high school yeah um you know by the time you reach high school you really do have to pare it down a bit and you know, I did some bike riding in high school, but really, I think it was my junior year, I did my first triathlon. And basically, I felt like that was going to be my sport. Yeah. Junior year in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but that's it, awesome. But it was really, yeah. it was a slow burn, shall right. we say. So from that point on, I just kind of added a couple more triathlons every year by the time I graduated from college I pretty much had a choice of going to the real world or yeah. let's see this triathlon thing let's see how well I can do whether or not I can make something of it and here I am still doing it that's great <laughs> and what about college so you were mm -hmm. mostly a swimmer in yeah I went to Middlebury College and the NESCAC, it belongs to a league called NESCAC. Yeah. And one of the advantages is that you can't start practice until November 1st. And somebody who was really active like me, that was definitely a draw. You know, I think it probably limited my performance um, as a swimmer. But the upside was that I could go hiking and backpacking and, you know, run the rest of the year and ride bikes and just continue to do what I've always done and that was just be active without pigeonholing myself too much yeah the um just getting into like kind of what drives you so that the activity part like what's kept you coming back over the years like what's kept you motivated and I love this sport um you know there are definitely times where it can be more of a love-hate relationship yeah. but I think that's I would say it's more accurate it's a love-hate relationship with myself as an athlete. My appreciation for the sport hasn't changed. I think, you know, triathlon by nature of being three sports, it really has appealed to just kind of that wandering sense I have where I don't have to decide on one yeah. sport. I can do three. It keeps me engaged in a different way than if I did one sport, I would have to be all in. Yeah. Um, and there's something that's kind of 
freeing about a sport like triathlon where you can kind of dabble in the three and a high level without hmm. feeling. Yeah. I, I just, I don't think that I have felt any sort of burnout that I would have if I had been a single sport athlete. Talk about your progression over the years in triathlon. Cause now mm-hmm. you're on the, you know, for people who don't follow mm-hmm. Ironman. So yeah, the, it's a 112 mile <laughs> bike yep. marathon yep. run, two and a half mile swim. So talk about that progression from, you know, shorter distances in that world, but still long. Right. And yes. When I grew up, there was NBC coverage of Hawaii Ironman and you know, we're talking, I'm seven, eight years old and I was a swimmer. I like to run and we didn't see that many women on TV for sports. And this is one of the few sports that we would see televised. And there was something that just kind of resonated with me where it wasn't necessarily that event, but the fact that I saw women doing sports that I liked on TV mm. and it looked really hard part of me, it really appealed to me. And I kind of, I just put it on the mental back burner for this is something that I could do someday. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once I was a triathlete, I didn't have tons of interest in doing Ironman because, you know, I was doing short course racing. I wanted to go to the Olympics. You know, I was very driven towards, you know, trying to get an Olympic medal. Um, and I was fourth. I was pretty close, but not quite there. And, you know, Iron Man was just something that at that point in time, I'll be honest, I kind of told sponsors I might do it because U.S., we pay very little attention to short course racing, but we pay a lot of attention to Iron Man racing. So it's appealing to sponsors. So, you know, I I didn't say no, I wasn't going to do it because I just honestly didn't know. You know, it's very different physiologically and it requires a different investment of energy. Uh, a lot of my time and energy as a short course racer went towards just traveling and living out of my suitcase for so many months out of a year. Iron. How many races a year in short course versus Ironman? I would, I would race over 10 times. Um, but I was gone over half the year. Whereas with Ironman, you really only get two shots at a full length race per year. So you don't race a lot. You can do some half Ironman races as kind of training races, but not a lot of racing. It's a lot of time, you know, by myself and staying motivated. And I wasn't sure I was going to like it. So I didn't want to make the move because I felt like I had to. I think there's a sense, especially, um, well, in, in endurance sport, we have the ability to move up in distance as we get older yeah. and you know physiologically we start to shift lose some of our speed pretty natural progression you'll see in running 510k runners move up to the marathon once they're in their 30s you know in triathlon you see short course racers move up to half ironman distance to and then to ironman distance mm-hmm. and i only wanted to make that jump if i felt like i could be fully committed not because i was just ticking a box keeping sponsors mm-hmm. happy so it wasn't until a couple of years ago that basically was like an epiphany where I didn't feel some really strong impulse to do an Ironman previous to this point. But I, within a couple of days, you know, this is what I have to do. This is something that I need personally. So for so many years, it had been about professional goals. And then I realized that I wanted to do an Ironman for personal reasons, you know, 
just that sense of completion, just here's something I'm not sure I can do. I don't know if I can put in, you know, up to 30 hours of training by myself. I don't know if I'm strong enough, tough enough, whatever the case might be. So I think that desire to prove something to myself 100% was a driving motivator. And then once I realized I was pretty good at it, (laughs) then it all of a sudden became a professional goal. So it's, you know, my relationship with the sport has changed as, you know, I have changed as a person. Yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting. So you've been doing Ironman distance for two years? This is my second year, yeah. And so you were Kona last year, your fourth. Mm-hmm. And then this year, you've been on, on track. Yeah. <laughs> with some I'm pretty in... obscene conditions <laughs> in your races, which I've seen yeah. on the internet. Yeah, um, yeah. So oh I, did, I did, um, what he's alluding to is uh, I did Ironman <laughs> Frankfurt. It was 100 degrees. Um, I mean, first of all, just racing in 100 degrees is crazy. Doing a nine-hour race in 100 degrees is insane. With 700 meters to go, I was pulled off the course by medical personnel who felt like I should not continue. Uh, To put it into context, that was $30,000 in a Kona slot, not including bonuses, with 700 meters to go. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I have not yet qualified, as of the taping of this, I have not yet uh, qualified for Kona. I lost on a significant portion of my income for the year. I mean, to be fair, from the external view, I was having exhibiting these weird neurological symptoms yeah. where I'd kind of lost motor control, just something in my brain had switched. You know, since we've determined so I was not actually in any danger whatsoever, it just looked crazy. Yeah, you were swaying. I was, oh, yeah, it was yeah. just this like head down. Totally arms crazy. Swaying. Totally crazy. But 700 meters. 700 meters, which is not a lot. It's not a lot. But it is what it is. So I, I have to. And that was a, a month ago? Yeah, it was just over a month ago. I'll be heading up to Montremblant next week to do another Ironman to qualify. So not ideal for Kona preparation. We decided. When is Kona? Uh, October. October. Yeah. Yeah. But it is what it is. So I'm just trying to accept that, you know, this is what happened. Got to make the most of the situation. Um, I clearly was fit enough. Like I had, this is the crazy part. I had seven minutes on second place when I was taken off the course, 13 minutes on second place. Um, I think 20 minutes to third. So I could have walked 700 meters. I could have crawled 700 meters in 20 minutes and still been third. Yeah. (laughs) Where are you at in your, yeah, acceptance. Oh, you you just have to laugh. Like, like, yeah. uh, Yeah. You laugh, but yeah. Yeah. You cry I, inside at the same time. Totally, totally. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it's it's a major title It's because you know, it's the European Championships. But you just learn there's nothing you can do. And sometimes, you know, in sport, there are things outside of your control. But yeah, I definitely went through a period where I was pretty angry because I felt like uh, things could have been handled differently. But then also... It, right. It was so close. The very first response is, why did my brain work that way? Yeah. We don't totally have an answer. So that's the biggest thing. I mean, ultimately, I was in a position where, you know, these paramedics felt that my continuing was questionable. So I have to control what I can control is and make sure that next time I'm racing in those conditions that I don't get to that point. So, 
you got to learn where you can, I suppose. What's the forecast for next week? Oh, beautiful 70s. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to have a surprise. Uh, well, I heard you uh, on another, that yeah. showing up in Australia a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, cool conditions until the day before the race. And right, right. So yeah. my race in Frankfurt was actually my backup race right. because initially I'd gone to Cairns, which is in tropical Queensland. I went over early to try to acclimate all the right things. It was rainy overcast for the lead up and race day was just really hot and humid. Um, That one was legitimately scary. So I actually blacked out. My blood pressure had just plummeted for a reason we're not aware of. Hmm. You know, so that one was not questionable. I should have taken off the course. I'm happy for the medical response I got. Right. Um, I did some heat training between that in Frankfurt to be able to be prepared. We looked into, you know, better ways to cool down and just nail the nutrition. It was good in hindsight to just realize that I should have taken the heat prep more seriously. We had assumed that the temperatures leading in would be similar to what it was on race day. It wasn't. Sometimes you just need that extra insurance policy of doing, you know, heat prep beyond the expectations of, of the predicted conditions. And so who's we, like, after a oh, race like yeah. that, who are you? My coach and yeah. I, yeah, we... Going over. Right, right. So he's very data-driven. My coach, is, his name's Dan Lorang, and he's, um, now he's primarily a cycling coach, but he also has a few triathletes, and, including me. So it's, he's over in Germany. I see him twice a year, maybe. But yeah, he knows his stuff. So what are the type of adjustments that you make, but mm-hmm. that, you know, the everyday athlete who's doing a hot race, like what have you learned? What are the basic things that people really need to go through and the science behind it? Well, it's extremely complex. Heat response is very individual. I can only speak to my own experience. Right. So a lot of what we've learned is about how to predict pacing that's appropriate and use heart rate as an indicator of stress for the run. I mean, I haven't had any problems in the swim and the bike. It all comes down to how I respond in the run. So that's the first thing. That's something I learned from Kona last year because, you know, hot, humid conditions. I got a little excited on the run, paid for it later. But we had, you know, we had these data points we could look to and see where we could have done things better. So that was something that was really important first lesson was looking at pacing and stress, you know, load to your body and being able to moderate to be able to ensure even pacing throughout. So that was something that was big. Also a lesson from last year, racing in the heat in Kona and having some heat distress later was if you do end up going beyond the pace that's appropriate for you, you do need to take more calories beyond your nutrition plan. So that was something that, uh, if I had really been tuned into my body when I was racing, I was getting the signals that I needed more food. And my nu- I stuck very strongly to my nutrition plan without adjusting hmm. at that moment to account for the increased caloric need. So that was something that was really useful to learn. Now, what's interesting about Frankfurt and my heat response there is on paper, we did everything right. So I, I moderated my pace. I was looking at my heart rate. You know, 
I really was on top of fluids and salts and nutrition, you know, all across the board. Like we did Checked some all heat. the boxes. Yeah. And yeah. There, there were definitely things I could have done better. So yeah. I could have done more fluids. I could have cooled down even. So every stop I was, you know, doing sponges. I was doing ice. I was putting ice in my hands, down my sports bra, under my hat. I could have done more of that. You know, I could have done more heat prep. And the limitation of living in New Hampshire is that we don't get a lot of heat. So what we were doing was, you know, indoor heat training sessions. It's good. You can still get a response. It's not going to be as good as if I had been training in 100 degree temperatures. So, you know, there are things we could have done differently. So what was scary to us was that my brain interpreted that I was in distress and there was nothing based on our understanding of my nutrition and cooling and pacing that would have signaled that. that. Right, right. So it's, it's now trying to tease apart the symptoms I did have and try to figure out what exactly happens are, it's very possible that it's a brain response. How do you fix that? Like I said, these things are very complicated. So I, one of the interesting things for me has been the triathlon world. One of the things I love is that we, and we have a strong community and people were definitely concerned. They wanted to be helpful after the race. And I'm sure you got lots of advice. So much <laughs> advice, but advice without context yeah. is definitely not helpful. No. It's well-meaning, but it's not helpful. So, you know, like, of course I know. Is this mostly on social media? Oh, yeah. Or people, like, sending you everything? Everything, everything. Um, But if you don't know what nutrition strategy somebody had, how can you just say, oh, you were bonking? Like, if you don't know my salt intake, how can you say it was a salt issue? So it's, it's a fascinating byproduct of the times we live in that people feel emboldened to help. Self-diagnose. <laughs> yeah. When we're talking about something that's extremely complicated and I have Decades very... of racing experience well, too. Of yeah. monitoring your body. Well, that's the thing that's interesting to me is I don't claim to be an expert. I don't claim to be an expert in triathlon or Ironman, but I'm an expert in my body. Yeah. Like, I spend every day interpreting and listening to the signals my body gives me. And one of the interesting parts has been people I don't know interpreting <laughs> signals of my body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's an itchy dog under the table. His name's Buddy, right? Yep. What's the story with your dog, Buddy? Our, he's, he's rather small. Yeah, we have <laughs> we have a bull mastiff named Buddy. He's 130 pounds. He's very slobbery. We got him a few months ago now. Ben decided it was time to get a new dog. Our previous dog passed away last mm. summer, and he's a work in progress. He's very sweet. He's very stupid. Yeah, but yeah, he's a good guy. Um, talk about the progression of listening to the signals like you were just talking about, not in terms of like one specific race, but on how your approach to listening to your body and kind of mind has changed over your career. I think the biggest thing that I have learned is how to separate ego and be more accepting of what's actually happening in the present moment. 
So early in my career, I would ignore the signals that I was getting and try to override them out of just pure stubbornness and this belief that, you know, I had to approach things a certain way. So I had to prove something. And, you know, that gets you in situations where you're overtraining, where you have, you know, bad workouts, you get sick. And as I've gotten older, I've learned that just stepping back and realizing that I was making decisions not based on what was right for me at the moment. I was making decisions based on ego. I just that desire to prove something. And I'm a bit too tired to execute it right. So either I modify it or we move it to another day. Or you know what? I'm not going to go into this period of denial where like I think I'm not getting sick. All the symptoms are there. Right. I have, you know, I am getting a cold. Let's back off of training. So it's, it's been a really good, I wish I'd understood all this stuff when I was in my early 20s because I would have been a totally different athlete. But it is what it is. And I think, you know, you're never too old, especially as our bodies change when we get older and we get a little, a little bit more fragile. I'm grateful I've learned it now. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think it's, these are lessons I'm just going to be employing the rest of my life. What about on getting older part, like the longevity side of maintaining fitness and improving in your sport, mm. but not getting injured or preventing injuries? Like, have you, are there new things you incorporate there or have you kind of been pretty steady on that? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've done over the past few years to help with that is I've gotten a bit more serious about doing gym work, uh, doing plyometrics and doing heavier weights. I don't love it, but it, it makes you more robust. It makes you more athletic. You lose some of that high-end power and speed as you get older and doing explosive work helps keep that in check a bit. Yeah. So I think that's one thing that's been really helpful. Um, your ability to do intensity decreases as you get older. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that you might need longer to recover. You might need to go into it with, you know, maybe reduced expectations about outcome. Yeah, it's been really shifting the model a little bit and really respecting recovery. I think that's the number one Can you one break thing. down yeah. how you think about recovery? I always have questions about mm. this. Like, I mean, I exercise at a very much lower amateur level and understanding how to listen to my body. I'm still like, do I need to rest today? Um, what is the signal of the soreness versus fatigue versus how your mind is feeling? Like break down kind of how recovery works and then how you apply it. What's helpful for me is that I have a coach and I will have my training program at the beginning of the week. So I can see what the critical sessions are and we'll have a handful of harder sessions. And I know that to be able to execute those properly, I need to have a certain level of energy and, and I need to be able to be rested enough going in to actually do them properly. So it's helpful for me to almost work backwards to think, okay, for these sessions, these are the ones that are going to improve me you know, the most as an athlete. Um, the priority sessions, how do I look at the rest of the week to make sure it provides the structure for them? And that means being really aware that on the days where it's easy, I'm going easily enough to be able to set myself up well for those hard days. And then also adjusting based on external stress. 
It's one of the things that's been really interesting for me is learning how, you know, your body doesn't really know the difference between training stress, you know, non-training stress, and being able to adjust expectations of training to keep that in check. So if I have a rest day and something majorly stressful is going on in my life, that's no longer really a rest day. Your body doesn't interpret it that way. So you have to modify your training accordingly. I think that's one of the hardest things for amateur athletes is to realize that their training plan is going to vary a lot. And it's recognizing the training stress, but also the the life stress and how that's going to affect their training and being able to be flexible, yeah, to accommodate it. It's interesting how much that seems to apply to performance in life outside of sports. Yeah. The stress can come from anywhere and impact your ability to perform in whatever environment you're in. Absolutely, yeah. What about the nutrition the nutrition and sleep mm. side? Not yeah. just a recovery, but performance and how your views on that have evolved or not over the years. I've gotten a lot better with sports-specific nutrition. So I definitely underfueled while I was training for most of my career, really until I started switching to Ironman. And when I would get done with sessions, I wasn't great about... Uh, now I pretty much religiously will have whey protein after a hard or long session. Um, you know, just trying to get in some carbohydrates, try to get in some protein you know, within pretty narrow window after a session. And I think that makes a big difference. I also will, for whatever reason, I got it in my head that you don't need to take that much food while you're training. You can't train for Ironman that way. So I've learned to constantly, well, not constantly, but take an appropriate number of calories with me to train my body to absorb calories, but also because it sets you up better for your next session if you're fueling along the way. Outside of race, sports-specific nutrition, not tons has changed. You know, we've always, my husband and I have always focused really on whole foods, cooking for ourselves, trying to eat locally. You know, the approach that we're going to take after sport and where we focus on high quality ingredients and not having a restrictive diet. Um, you know, it's very balanced. We, I think there are far too many athletes who deprive themselves and ends up having a psychological effect on you that we don't need to add stress to our lives. (laughs) Are there any like self-imposed restrictions on what you guys eat? I I mean, outside of eating locally and fresh. No, no. So other than personal preference. Yeah. And Ben doesn't do very well with dairy, so we don't eat tons of dairy. (laughs) But it's not, we don't deprive ourselves of food because it's less nutritious. Uh, We just eat those sorts of foods sparingly. Mm -hmm. Just for people listening who are like, what should I eat after a race, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure it's specific to the race and distance, but your body refueling itself, like what have you found works for you in terms of like that 20 minutes after so you have like a whey protein yeah. shake or something yeah like that. yeah the studies are pretty strong that you know whey That's protein within works well. 30 minutes yeah it works yeah. well and after an iron man you don't well really after racing most of us don't feel like eating that much right yeah. after but then it's what do you look forward to later on 
when you finally get your appetite back and after a day of taking in sugar, I like salty and fatty foods. <laughs> you just kind of have to listen to your body. What um, about the morning of a race? Talk rice about and eggs. Your, like, yep. <laughs> what's your breakfast of choice? Yeah, rice and eggs rice and, and eggs. coffee. Okay. Yeah. Just uh, white rice. Has that rice. been a long... For a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's easily digestible. Um, a little fat, a little protein. It helps with that feeling of being satiated for a longer period of time. You know, white rice, no fiber mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then coffee because it's, it's delicious and wonderful magic. <laughs> yeah. So what about the coffee world The outside of training? the? Uh, oh, yeah. Let's talk uh, what you guys do. We're really into coffee. We like specialty coffee. So had single origin beans. Uh, ben, he's been roasting for a little while and... At some point, we're going to start a coffee roastery. That's the plans. Does it have a name yet? No, you know, naming things it's is pretty hard. really hard. It's pretty complicated It's really business. hard. So for months, uh-huh. we have been going <laughs> back and forth about naming our future coffee company, and we haven't come up with anything. Last year, we started a coffee roasting company with a, another couple, and we're no longer part of that, but it was it was really great to learn and to realize that this is something that we do want to put more energy and time into. What have you learned about coffee? What are the roasting uh, well, Ben's, the complexities of... Ben's the real <laughs> coffee nerd. I'm very good at drinking some coffee and I like the other aspects of the business. I'm not going to be the one geeking out over the different roast profiles, things like that. But yeah. What about, like on the business side, talk about the, you know, making a career as a professional athlete in the endurance world, the ups and downs of that, how it's evolved over the years as you've done it. What parts have been pleasantly surprising and what parts have been (laughs) disappointing? Yeah. So the way we make a living is, I mean, I'll just speak to triathlon. Most of my income comes from racing. So prize money and from sponsorship. When I was doing short course racing, also I would get subsidies from USA Triathlon through the US Olympic Committee and they would pay for travel and health insurance. Once you leave the USOC bubble, you no longer have the health insurance and uh, the travel help, but it's a different world. What's great about triathlon is that we have multiple categories and we don't have restrictions on the number of sponsors. So we joke that we're kind of like the the NASCAR of right. of sport. Yeah. You know, you compare that to distance running and you know Ben can have one title sponsor. He's sponsored by one company. Uh he can have additional sponsors, but they cannot have their logos on his uniform. So that really limits mm-hmm. your ability to get revenue from multiple streams. Now generally the contracts are bigger from that one sponsor result. But if you wanted to think outside the box and, you know, say Apple wanted to sponsor an athlete, well, they can't sponsor a runner because it has to be a recognized shoe manufacturer. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to get uniform rights. So and it's who is imposing it's a that rule? The uh, IAAF? Run? Yeah, IAAF. The working with sponsors and mm. everything, do you do that yourself or do you have uh, like yeah, an agent? I have an agent. Yeah. yeah. 
how do sponsors influence kind of choices that are made, do you think, in the... I try to think about it the other way around. I like to partner with companies whose products I genuinely right. like. And I have turned down money from companies whose product I don't like because it's not worth it. And the, if, if you can't vouch for you know, the logo on your shirt, then why? You know, right. We've... <laughs> I guess everybody has a price, but a, yeah, I don't personally get it. Have you had long-term relationships on your side with some of them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the market's always changing, and you get you'll get marketing teams in, and they want to shift away. Triathlon's a, an, an interesting sport for companies, so they're always trying to figure out their approach to it. But yeah, and who it's are your sponsors right now? I have a long list. You have a long list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay um i you know I pref- you've got the nascar i i am totally nascar i prefer to think of them honestly as partners yes. um because it's a give and take relationship you know it's not just a logo we in ideal world you help them with product development and and there's the other side where you're no, i get it yeah, yeah. so tier has been a long time sponsor for me for swim gear I ride specialized. I'm running with Hoka One One. Wahoo Fitness is a sponsor of mine. Momentus is a protein company Ben and I work with. My hydration needs are met by noon. I'm part of uh, New York Athletic Club. And Pete and Jerry's provides us with some eggs. There so, we go. Yeah. I like it. I Those feel are like good brands. They're awesome. You're going to be proud of all of them. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, but it's... I mean, wh- one of the recommendations I give to young athletes trying to navigate the whole you know, sponsorship side of things right. is start off with things that you legitimately like and believe in mm. and try to develop a long-term relationship with those companies. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but you're starting from a place of authenticity. That still matters. Yeah. Good advice. What other, on the advice part, what would you give, we've talked about this already some, but looking back at yourself mm-hmm. coming up, um, are there things where you've learned a lot or would change anything if you were going to do it over? Yeah. I think the biggest thing is I wish I had started off with more of a, a growth mindset. I think I, for too long, just believed you're either good at something or you're not. Instead of just allowing myself to see everything as a work in progress, where yeah, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but those weaknesses, you can get better at them over time. And I think as a result, I was, I've spent a lot of time not being nice to myself. Like just when you're holding yourself up to unrealistic standards, it can become really toxic. So I think one of the biggest things was to see myself as a work in progress instead of just deeply flawed. Right. I would have had much healthier career just in terms of how I saw myself as Mm -hmm. an athlete. Yeah. I haven't read the book. There's a book on growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Have you read that? I think it's called growth mindset. I'm not sure. Well, I'll look it up after. And it made me think of that. (laughs) It's funny how much we've talked about that even business world where I came from. The in seeing this entrepreneurs who are 23 years old, 25 year olds running some of the biggest now companies in the world like 
the importance of having that growth mindset in any situation mm. and the effect it can have on your teams and yourself, right? Like yeah. when you don't, it's really interesting. Yeah, no, I, one of the things that was interesting in our foray into business is seeing how if you can separate ego from what you're doing, you're going to be so much better off because you're able to take feedback. To feedback. Yeah. yeah, so it's not you messed up. It's how can we improve this process and how can you improve how you go about it? It's not a judgment. It's merely let's increase efficiency. Let's improve our response and become better as a company as a result. So I think that was really nice to see in practice. Just if you're able to separate ego and let the work speak for itself, you're going to be better off. And, you know, whatever your pursuit is, you're going to go a lot further. I feel like we're luckily in the business world, but also in sports, seeing it talked about more like the kind of the post-race blues, yeah, <laughs> right? Like that's now happily a thing so people can talk about it. Yeah. Um, you know, coming off of whether it's a good race or a bad race and you've just been training towards a goal and you've either hit it or not, how do you, you know, those weeks after where you're like, well, I don't have something else for a long time or... Yeah, you know, well, you know. I mean, definitely after um, both Olympic cycles, and this is really, really common, is... Like I definitely was clinically depressed after both. And you realize that so much of it's just how you have to shift how you self-identify. And if you've been single-mindedly focused, you normally lose sight of who you are outside of being an athlete. And it's just the better able you're to remind yourself over that process, the easier it is to kind of transition after a big event. But it's normal, you know, yeah. anytime you focus deeply on something and so much of your life is wrapped around that performance, right. it's not even just in sport. I mean, I would imagine if, if you've built up a company for years and you sell it first, you're going to be excited and then there's going to be massive letdown because who are you then? <laughs> you know, yeah. that company has been your identity, such a huge part of you, you know, how you operate on a day-to-day -day basis, but then how you see yourself. So then it's trying to remember who you are outside of. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's really common. What about maybe not to your younger self, but to kids or parents of athletes who are, you know, this is like my observation as a parent is there's so much focus on specialization so early and so much on intensity. Like my son plays soccer and mm -hmm. it's like, it will be never ending, right? If, if a club could get you in, 12 months a year into every tournament you'd be doing it and you're starting to see the trends on injury rates with kids who've been doing that from early ages i don't know what do you think about the balance like how do you keep the fun in it but also the competitiveness <sighs> I, and performance yeah. big question <laughs> yeah we want kids to specialize early but they burn out and over the long run it doesn't make them better players or better athletes you have to separate the kids who are have a deep intrinsic motivation, those with an extrinsic motivation. You know, it gets complicated. When you're a kid, are you motivated because you want to please your parents, because you want to please your coach, because you think you have to? But then there are those kids who are just obsessed with something. Right. And you want to let them. You let them, yeah. right, let so them go. Yeah. It's definitely a case-by-case -case basis. 
I know very few professional athletes who specialized early on with one sport and are still doing it. And I, I'm not a fan of early specialization. I think you need to try lots of things to figure out what you genuinely love and doing more sports will make you better athlete in whatever sport you eventually choose. Cause I think, you know, I was never going to be a great soccer player, but probably having years of lateral movement was helpful. Was helpful. I don't get injured much. I think a lot of what I was doing as a kid definitely helped with motor patterns and, you know, developing overall athleticism, which pays off. What about to girls and women coming up? What positive improvements have been made or, you know, for sure development? (laughs) I, I love seeing that there are so many positive role models for female athletes now. And they come in all sorts of different packages. You know, you look at the, going back to soccer, the U.S. women's soccer team and the amount of diversity that you see in that team in just, we wouldn't have seen that 20 years ago. We wouldn't have seen these women speaking out on issues off the fields. Um, How we see female athletes has changed so much where... Before, it was kind of an anomaly. You know, you want them to fit into a package that's pretty and perfect. And now we realize that just like everybody else, (laughs) there's a range. I love it. I love seeing the changes that have been happening with women's sports. Um, Yeah, I think we weren't sure how to match up you know, the feminine ideal and, and the athletic ideal. And I think we realize that we can just throw all that out the window. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah. What about other female athletes that inspire you? I love seeing what the younger athletes are doing and, and how they're using their platform. I mean, not just the younger, I mean, like I said, Megan Rapinoe, like what she's doing is awesome. But then I look at the younger athletes like Kate Courtney and you're talking about somebody who, you know, she's smart, she's feminine, she's strong, she's the full package. Yeah. And such as a positive role model. You know, Leah Davison, she's my contemporary from Middlebury. And yeah. watching how she's approached her career, she's been so inspiring to me because she approaches mountain biking with this genuine joy and love. And it just bursting out of her. And I think that same... she started Little Bellas. She started Little Bellas. Yeah, which is... My daughter couldn't get in because there's such a wait list. Yeah, there's a wait list here too. she's doing it in a couple of weeks. Oh, that's awesome. But (laughs) she chose to start an organization to get other girls on bikes. And I've realized is that by giving back, it's given her fuel in her career. Hmm. And I wish I'd realized that sooner, that it's really easy as an athlete to get too self-involved. But to right, make, it's not actually checking a box. It's providing meaning and fulfillment yeah, to your yeah, life. Yeah, it, right. it's, it's added fuel to her yeah. career because she's racing for a purpose. And that's something that I see in an athlete like Kate where she's racing for a purpose. Yes, she loves what she's doing. She's successful. But there's also the sense that there's a deeper drive, that it's yeah. not just this. You know, I think from the outside perspective, you can look at what we're doing as you know, really self-indulgent. And a lot of the time being an athlete is kind of self-indulgent, but there can also be this higher reason for doing it. Definitely. Yeah. 
What about kind of down that path, but just on finding inspiration of like books, podcasts, like what do you do kind of outside of your athletic life that brings kind of fuel into it or into just you as a person? Hmm. Outside of sport, I try not to spend much time thinking about sport. Yeah. Unfortunately, the past couple of years has spent way too much time obsessing about politics. But, you know, I I love fiction. My sister's a, a fiction writer. She's an author. And she always is great for giving me new books to read. <laughs> and, and what's her name for people who oh, want to find Groff. her? Yeah. Okay, there we yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Making sure everybody yeah, yeah, has by, the plug. I mean, buy her books. Yeah. <laughs> She's already selling lots of books. (laughs) She's selling them, but she can always sell more. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's been huge for me is to have somebody in my own family who's pursued a passion and she's gotten really far with a lot of hard work, but it was unlikely. You know, her success, um, if you know anything about, you know, creative pursuits like writing, it's very hard to be successful. Very few. Very few, but she was doing it because she had to. Hmm. But it requires a lot of discipline. It requires a lot of hard work. And But if she had doubted herself, it wouldn't have happened. I mean, she definitely inspires me. Yeah. With your sister and with you, how much do you think is kind of innate ability versus I, the train? You know, the- my siblings and I have all been successful in different realms. And I think very little is innate ability. I think it's mostly hard work. And I mean, there's an aspect that we don't talk about, which is privilege. Yeah. So we grew up, we had great educations. We all graduated from college without debt. You know, we had parents that supported us. We had good health. Like if we had grown up in a different background... Yeah. We wouldn't have achieved. Right. We probably yeah. wouldn't. Have, it would be it very have, unlikely yeah. for us to have achieved the way we have. So, but when you're talking about racial and socioeconomic privilege, you have to recognize it. Yes, I think we're all probably moderately intelligent, healthy people. But let's be honest, you know, triathlon. <laughs> yeah, no, a lot of these sports, <laughs> skiing and triathlon Writing, are not exactly cheap, yeah. cheap. Uh, yeah. Sports that have easy entry points for but the general public. You know, the, I mean, even even my sister recognizes the advantage of privilege, where she was able to graduate without debt, and she got her MFA without having more debt because she got enough of of a stipend. But she also had a husband who supported. You know was able to help with the financial support and has been emotionally and financially supportive, uh, you know, during the harder years. So it's, you know, when we're talking about business, when we're talking about going into sport, into creative endeavors, there's a high element of risk. And those of us with certain backgrounds, it's easier for us to take those risks. If I had failed as a triathlete, I would have been fine. Yeah. The risks were not that high. If I had graduated from school with crippling student loans and had a family to support, of course I wouldn't go into triathlon and try to make a go of it. (laughs) It's uncomfortable to talk about, but like, we have to be honest. We have to be honest about, you know, when you have certain advantages, you know, 
we can talk about talent and all these things, but this is a huge advantage. Yeah, I'm th- kind of my, a bummer. Sorry, is, I know I'm going through like, <laughs> why do you? How do you? Uh, <laughs> and there's sports like soccer, right, that are so big around the world where people can play on a dirt field and still reach a level. But you potentially, even... but you're still getting put in those elite. Yeah, I feel like even soccer in the U.S. has turned into. Um, I love soccer. Yeah, but is turned into it's an expensive sport. Yeah, but you get can, into even internationally how many top players have never been identified oh yeah because they're playing with some ball and some dirt fields and you know it's right they don't make it onto that fancy club in their town because right. maybe their town doesn't have one right well <laughs> right. because there's region. no access yeah 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 or they cannot pursue sport anymore you know through those formative years because they have to go to work right <laughs> So even the most, you know, egalitarian sport, systemic problems. Yeah. Um, Jeez, what a bummer. Oh, man. Oh, the world. F- <laughs> it's not all sunshine and butterflies. <laughs> when you look ahead over the next couple of years as, you know, a pro athlete and beyond, like what's driving you right now? That's a really, I thought the breakfast question was the hard one. (laughs) (laughs) Right now I'm at the place in my career where I find it fulfilling. I find what I do fulfilling, you know, being part of my community. There will be a point where I move on, but will be about finding what keeps me professionally, personally fulfilled. It's just going to be a different community. It's going to be a different space. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't talk much about training, but there's so much to talk about. There. Oh, geez. I'm trying to figure out. Especially the, with three sports. <laughs> I know. Stay healthy. Uh, yeah. Chip away over time. <laughs> be patient. Don't get injured. Done. <laughs> Do some hard work, but be smart about it. We just figured training out. <laughs> yeah, the hard work. I'm learning that because, you know, for me, I feel like I've trained too hard and too short. Mm. period so i'm trying to add some easy longer stuff since i don't think i have any actual endurance yeah but you hear a lot about that where people go too hard on their what is it too hard on their yeah on their easy days yeah Yeah, which i've talked about but maybe it's you know go one of the reasons why we put in a lot of hours is just to have that aerobic base you know that's just part of doing endurance sports you need to have that foundation that comes through just hours of training but then to perform well you also need to get the other side which is some intensity so what's your next week so you're racing next weekend mm-hmm. yep you know you talked about you usually do two to three a year at the most and you've done two in in a couple months Ugh. what's your last month well, look like with I didn't really get that far in the run for the first Right, one. so you didn't use So up. that was like a training <laughs> session in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I recovered. It's more that it compromises, you know, if I qualify for compromises, I prep for that. So yeah. th- I've been able to recover well from Frankfurt. I'm pretty fit right now. It's really a question of, you know, should I qualify? What I can do with a very limited yeah. period of time before early October. <laughs> You've got it. You know, it is what With it is. It, yeah. I'm willing to take the risk because there's no downside. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Anything I missed that uh, 
you get asked these questions a lot. Are there questions you think people should be asking that people are maybe missing? Oh, geez. That is an open-ended question. It is. Um, I don't know. That I don't know. This is good. I mean, should, I should you have a dog? Um, <laughs> dogs are great. They need exercise. There's a big one sleeping right here. If you go away for training camps, though, it makes it a little challenging. But overall, I would say yes. That's, That's good. <laughs> very good. I think we can close on that one. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs> See you, buddy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com. <laughs>